Welcome to Code Chefs, the podcast for hungry web developers. I'm your host today, Vincent, and with me is Herman Gamboa. We're both full stack developers from sunny Central Florida, and for today's topic, we're going to be talking about an introduction to backend development. For this topic, I'm going to kind of play the role of someone that isn't nearly as familiar with as with backend developments as my co-host German, and I'll be asking questions to German, kind of like more so from a beginner's mindset on what backend development is and what it's not. And then German would kind of take the lead answering the questions from there. So what are some common misconceptions of backend development, German? I guess, well, I'll start out with like the most common misconception that people attribute to it is that you have to be really good at math. Because it's like, oh, I'll be a front-end developer because I'm not good at math or something like that. There's actually a lot more math when it comes to front-end and doing animations and sorts of that. The other bad, the other thing is that it's super complex. It can be, but it's it can also be as complex as you make it. Same with the front-end as well. Yeah, that's about like the two, ba- two major ones I can think of from the top of my head. Okay, so let's say I'm building an application and I'm building a to-do app, right? And I'm, I'm learning how to use React for the first time. I got create, create React app set up. I'm running like the npm commands for for spinning up like my first application, and I'm watching tutorial, and I'm learn I've learned how to use Firebase, you know, to hook up to my app to like create new to do items and then delete more to do items, and I'll usually call like the Firebase like functions that they give me. I mean, is that is that considered a backend at that point, or is it because I'm I'm writing like a React app, right, and then ready mostly front end code, quote unquote, right, but. What is what is like what is backend code in this sense, right? Or, or what what is a different way of building something simple like a to do app you, that has both a front end component and a backend component? So with Firebase, it is a backend, by the way. So it, it's it's what's called a backend as a service. So it kind of gives you like a backend out of the box, which is pretty useful. It's just it's useful in some use cases and some not. I would personally always use Firebase to prototype stuff out, especially when it's something that's a front end, like something that's front end heavy, right? And the cool thing about Firebase is you can still do backend programming when it comes to using like serverless functions, which we'll get to a little bit later down the road. But if you want to say, create your own little app, just to practice it being full stack, it would, easiest thing is a to-do app, right? Because a lot of those apps are gonna have like those four major components to them, right? You're gonna have, be able to create stuff, read stuff, update stuff and delete stuff. That's what we call like making a crowd app. And that's like, basically is everybody experiencing to like full stack development. So yeah, that's how you knew the best way to get started with that. In my opinion, will be to kind of either kind of use Node.js because you're probably familiar with JavaScript and then deploy that to Heroku and then use one of the free databases that Heroku gives you using something like MySQL, which is going to be the best thing to learn from here. But let's say uh, I'm, I'm learning, you know, front end application frameworks. And maybe before that, I was learning jQuery. Why can't I just use Firebase for everything, or just use like if I'm using like another API, like Twitch's API for for grabbing like the list of streamers and, and streamers that I want to follow? Like, why do I even need to have a backend in the first place? Can I just do everything on the front end? Like, you can actually, and a lot of times you don't want to do that because there's some sensitive stuff that you probably don't want your front end knowing about. Especially, so let's actually dive into your Twitch example because you can technically use Firebase for everything, but there's Depends on how much money you have and how busy your app's going to be. You might not want to do that, uh, but that's a, that's a little bit more nuanced. And again, I really want to get into that when we get to our serverless function portion of the stuff. But when it comes to Twitch, let me ask you a question. So for Twitch, you're probably to use their API. You have to get yourself a token, right? Yeah, like, yeah. You, have to, you like, have to register on their on their account as a for as a developer account, and you get an API token, I believe. Yeah. 
Correct. So basically, remember, everything that's on the client side is accessible to the user, right? You can always open DevTools and look at the code for like your favorite website and see how the front end is built. Obviously, most of the time it's going to be obfuscated. It's going to be like garbled, but you can still see the values in there. So when it comes to like those type of tokens that are sensitive, because you don't obviously want somebody getting your Twitch token, then they can use your account to get like to get like requests. I think t- Twitch is going to well. Twitch is limited to how many requests you can make per minute or per hour. So you would lose, if you somebody stole your token, they can just use that, right? So you probably want to hide it behind a backend where the server, where you only have control of the server. Yes, people can still make requests to your server, but now you can actually control the flow of those requests coming in. So that's why you, you probably wouldn't want to do all everything in the front end. Or maybe you have multiple clients, right? Let's say you're making a phone app, you're making a, uh, a web app, and there's a certain logic that it would be better lived in the backend because otherwise you would have to replicate it across both both apps. And then in that case, whenever you make an update to it or you have to change it, which is change is always going to be the only thing guaranteed in development, you're gonna have to switch it into both spots. And especially if that's a web if, if that's a phone app, it's tricky because then you have to like get it reapproved by the um, by whatever um, app store you're using in that case. So I guess like what I'm understanding is like the main use of creating or having a backend is you're kind of limited on what you can do on the front end. Like you have security vulnerabilities. If you're communicating from one system to another, in this case, like one front end app, like a web app to like a mobile app, how, how do those two talk to each other, right? Is, is what you were saying earlier. So what, what are some like analogies like for someone that's learning front end development, back end development? Like what, what are some analogies of like describing the difference between both of them? Like... Mm-hmm. Like, if that makes any sense. Yeah, there's a perfect analogy here, especially for a podcast, which is Coach Chefs, is think of a restaurant, right? So you can clearly in the restaurant, there's there's like a division between what's called the front of the house, which is the dining room or like the area where you eat and the back of, back of house, which is going to be the kitchen and all the other stuff like the salad uh, salad stations and the search stations and all that stuff. So that's if you're going to be preparing the food. So you can think of your table as being the web app, right? Or in this case, a client, we call them clients. So whether, whether it's your phone app, it can be a text messaging scenario where you're just texting back and forth. It's a client uh, of that back of that backend, right? Mm-hmm. So in the server, it's like your request. The server is going to be your, your, your HTTP request in this case. So whenever you're asking something, yes, you would have, you would obviously tell your server what you want. And then they would go to the back of house and let, let the kitchen know, or they would put it on most cases, they'll put it into a computer nowadays and then, the back of the house will know. But let's assume that she's going back there, he's going back there and giving them the ticket. And then they're going to go ahead and make that for you and then send it back to the server. So in that case, yes, technically, I guess you could say the server could make the food in front of you, but that wouldn't be very good. <laughs> uh, Maybe he yeah, was, well, technically, hibachi chefs will cook the food right in front of you, but that's an exception, though. Because <laughs> they take all the ingredients in front of you. <laughs> it's like, all right, let's cook it. Let's do it on your volcano. Put it into your hat and do the egg trick and everything else, right? It's like one that's like the pocket shrimp or something like that. The pocket shrimp. Oh god, there's so many. There's so many tricks. The one where there's. Yeah, I mean, I mean, what we gave was a, what's what's this called a, a leaky abstraction. So obviously, it's leaky because once you start poking at it, it's gonna like it's it's really not gonna hold up, right? It's not it's not actually describing the thing a hundred percent. But it, it should give you an idea of basically like a, a good analogy of what it is. So front of house is the case your web app, the back of house is your server. So it's the kitchen that's taking, that's gonna be grabbing a bunch of different ingredients. Because this, this is what a lot of backends are, especially like for us web developers, a lot of our backends are gonna be like this giant thing that's gonna take a bunch of different ingredients. So different APIs, different databases, different resources, and basically just mash them together into a plate that it's gonna get sent to the front end. 
hey, that's actually a pretty good analogy at the very end that I came up with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's definitely that's definitely a really good analogy. What what is like the waiter in this case? The guy that walks from the dining room, aka the front of the house, all the way to the back of the house, aka the kitchen. What is the waiter or waitress in this case related your, to your request, basically? Your, like your HTTP requests. Uh, yeah. What what exactly are HTTP requests? So whenever you communicate, oh, we're going to like communicate with servers. Okay, cool. So. Again, a server is nothing fancy, but it's going to be a computer in some data center server or your computer at home. It's, it's a computer. Just just call it a computer in the cloud. Which, if even if it's a serverless, <laughs> it's still it's still a computer. It's not. It's never going to stop yeah, being a computer. Okay. If you call if you call it serverless, it doesn't mean you don't have to manage it yourself. But basically, there's different ways to communicate with, with a different computer. Now, the standard for web is called an HTTP request or hybrid text transfer protocols, which mm-hmm. it's a protocol. It's something we came up with. It's nothing like inherent to computers. It's a lot of this is going to be a lot of development in general. It's like basically just specs that people came up with after having long conversations on how to standardize doing something. Uh, so, they, but a request is going to be very like it's. I'm going to leave a part here, part here where you can keep connections open. But it's a way of making a temporary connection with a server, requesting something, and then the server replying to you with something. Whether that and that something can be pretty much anything. It can be a video, a photo, text, code, or HTML, CSS, JS. Right. Yeah, it can, or it can be yeah, it can be a file, it can be code, it can be yeah, it can be whatever. It's gonna send it back to you, and then what's gonna happen is that connect that basically is like a quick like if I was passing you a note basically. Uh-huh. Uh, so if I pass you a note and that's about it, and then it's kind of done. Or a better example here would be you give me a note, I fill it out, and then I send it back to you, and that's basically what an HTTP request is going to be in this case. There's other ways of communicating with servers that get a little bit more complex, uh, such as opening a WebSocket, which is you still opening a connection with the server, but in this case, it doesn't stay closed. So it's basically going to be like like us right now. We're talking basically over a phone. So mm-hmm. It's, it's going to be very similar to that. Yeah, you can describe that as a asynchronous operation, correct? Which part? The WebSocket? Uh, yes. Well, technically in JavaScript land, both are asynchronous. Oh, yeah, that's right. Actually, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so, so another question. Let's say I'm also let, I'm just learning like you know front development for the first time. Let's say, and I just learned jQuery, you know, and building like an application just just using the Twitch API again. But now I'm also trying to set up the backend for it. And let's say let's just say uh, PHP for instance, right? Since since you're very comfortable with PHP. Uh, like, how is that set up different versus with like React? Like, like if you're building an application with with jQuery, which is a JavaScript like li- utility library that's been used since 2011, but now now the more popular frameworks out there are Vue, Angular, React, and also Svelte. Right? How how is your structure between like your front end and your back end different with like today's frameworks versus like older frameworks? If that makes sense. Like. Does that make sense in terms of the communication process from the front end to back end? Not a hundred percent. So like server server side templating and server side routing versus no, client side routing. Yeah. Like how does that how does that work? So let's actually talk about something here called MVC. So basically, you know, if you're familiar with front end stuff, newer front end stuff, we're not gonna go into full jQuery here, but we're gonna talk about maybe like uh, maybe like Vue or React. You know, you have like. Uh, and I don't think it's, well, it's still a concept of React, but basically you have your views and then you have something that controls your view. Mm-hmm. But in yeah, I think in React a while ago, they were called containers and like dumb components or mm-hmm. there, was, there was like that concept. Uh, it's changed a little bit with the release of hooks, but 
that concept still exists. But in the back end, you're going to have something that's really fancy sounding, but it's really not that fancy. It's called MVC, which is going to be called Model View Controller. So in the back end, you're going to have something that's going to be your view. So basically, you're going to have three things, right? Or three three concepts you have to think about. Your, your model, which is going to be your data. In 90% of the cases, it's going to be related to something that's going to be your database. Or in this case, it can also be like the data coming, coming back from um, Twitch, right? It can be like your data is the, the list of streamers that you subscribe to. Um, then you have your controller, which is going to be controlling a different, it's going to be controlling the actions that need to be triggered from something. There's different types of controllers. And then there's the view. The view is basically what you're presenting to the whoever called, right? So let's say you make a request to the server. What's going to happen is it's going to go through the routing. So there's routing the same way you would have on the front end. And except in this case, loading, a, in this case of loading a specific component or a specific drawing something on the screen, it's going to go ahead and hit a controller. In this case, an HTTP controller to be more, more exact. And what's going to happen in that controller is basically going to like, it's going to be basically the, the, the cook in the kitchen, right? It's going to start saying, okay, for this controller, we need to go ahead and get some of this. We need to get some of this. We need to call this guy. And then we have to wait for the res this response. And then maybe like we need to like maybe like make it look pretty. And then we're actually going to, once we're done, we're going to plate everything. We're going to put everything on a plate. Uh, and then we're going to send it back. Now, that plate can be a difficult, can be a couple different things. That plate can be JSON, or you can actually have, like have your server put together your your HTML. So it can actually go ahead and build HTML with, in that case you would get into like having some sort of templating stuff. So PHP itself, it's a templating language, uh, but in PHP you would use something extra libraries, something called as like, um, like Symfony uses Twig, uh, Laravel uses Blade. Yeah. There's other ones. There's like Smarty, Smarty PHP. Which <laughs> yeah, that's basically like you're like that's basically in front of how you would write HTML by hand, except you, you're you're doing it automatically. The server's gonna build different fragments of it for you. But that's a a little bit of a different conversation. But in, in most cases, the view itself it's going to be at least for or us as modern web developers is going to be JSON. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. Well, when you're describing the model view controller, which is like a common design pattern that you'll see in building applications, which the controller, like you said, is is where you hit your endpoint in the back end. The models that handle the, the model handles all the logic, and then the view is the thing that gets rendered on the page, right? And that's if you're using like Laravel or Rails or, or Blade templates or whatever thing. What so like so like what I was trying to ask is like when you're setting up like an application, right? There's there's two different approaches. One is like the server side rendered method where you have your your routes on a page. Like if you're going to like to do app.com slash list slash one or something, that URL route can be controlled by the backends. I mean, technically, it's all it's controlled in many different ways, but you can you can have it paginated by the back end, or you can have it paginated by the front end. That makes sense. So, like that, that's what I was trying to refer to. Yes. Yeah, so in that case, I probably answered it, but not in a direct way. So in this case, if you want, there's two different styles, right? You have like the web app that's just the app itself, and it's gonna make requests to the server to get resources. And again, ten ninety percent of the time, JSON. Or you have the type of server side app, which is kind of do like assemble all your HTML with data in the backend. So again, that itself, it's the view. And then the views basically can be changed out. So in this case, we were talking about the view in the case, in the question that you asked, we're gonna return the, we're gonna return HTML, right? And then the other case, we're just returning JSON. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. Like, yeah, what, yeah, once the server side rendered way is returning HTML and the, the, the client side rendered way is always communication via JSON between the back end and front end. 
So that's the best way to describe it. Should we move on to more of the specifics on like the backend developer, kind of like what they do in terms of, let's say, designing the API? Like what 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 gets entailed here? Like if you're if you're designing like a backend system, like what do you have to think about? Well, like, it's really dependent. Like, it's really dependent on the system. So, for instance, let's let's pick an example that that's well understood. Um, let's say you're building Facebook.com, right? What, like, a more contrived example? Like, what are some things you have to think about when you're designing the API slash backend slash database for building Facebook? Like, you've got your friends list, you've got your profile. Like, what do you what do you like? What is the process of like figuring out, especially if, if I'm coming from like the front end world and I'm not familiar with how to do all this, because I usually let the back end developer do the rest of this, right? And I just call an API and I'm done. Yeah, and that's awesome when you can do that. But so as a back end person, like the first thing I would do when I'm trying to like think of a new, like working on an app in this case, we're going to use Facebook, uh, which itself it's not a really complex setup, right? I mean, what Facebook does is really complex now that it's grown to a billion things and oh, yeah. all the AI and stuff in there. Tracking it constantly, everything you're writing. Yeah, that, that's yes. a lot of information. But I'm just like the simple, like when Facebook originally started, like here's yes, the simplest so- example of what the core features of what the MVP of Facebook is. Like, how would you design that? Like, what do you have to think about? So the first thing I would think about is basically my data model. So I want to start thinking about like how data data is related to each other, which is kind of true. That part is going to be true like in most cases, right? So most of the time you can think of like, hey, I have a user. That user is going to have pictures. Okay, is it going to only have one picture or they're going to have multiple pictures? Okay, so that if, if I see the user only has one picture, then the relationship between that data is the user, it's a one-to-one. So it's a one user to one photo. If I'm thinking of, hey, maybe a user can have many friends. In that case, I can my relationship is going to be uh, one-to-many. And then, although the one-to-many is kind of limited because now the child or the other side of the relationships, in this case, friends, only a friend only has one user. But we realize, hey, that's probably not true. What's actually going to happen is a user is a person. It's a user. A friend is a user as well. So it can be. It's a many-to-many relationship. So I'll start kind of like modeling the data out. And the cool thing about backend and, and also frontend in general, I know like when you're told to like like how to name your functions is basically call it what you actually what the action actually is like send request or like load photo or whatever. You're basically gonna be going through that it, going through that in the backend. So you're gonna be kind of like going through the relationships of data that you have. So I know this is the reason Mongo is not super popular as people think it is. Uh, I know everybody uses Mongo when they're starting out like backend tutorials, and that's because you kind of skip over the whole aspect of having to think about the way data is related. And you'll shoot yourself in the foot later on whenever your boss tells you, I want a way to make this complex report, and then you have to try to write that complex report. And go, <laughs> you will hate yourself. Uh, it's not easy because things are not actually related to each other. Uh, anyways, I why, digress. Why are those relationships important, though? Like. Why, why do we care about them? Because basically, that's how you're, that's how that's that, that's going to be like the representation of your data in the backend, right? So we have that that model in the MVC. We have that data layer that's going to be that model layer. So in this case, when I'm actually like getting like um, getting ready to actually write down my API, which I'll, I'll get into more in a second, but address this question first. I'll answer that first. Mm-hmm. I'll say, hey, for this, for me to give a user a new friend, I need to have. I need you, the front end, to send me the user and then the friend that wants to be added. So in this case, usually database ID so I can relate them together. So I'm relating data all over the place. And a lot of the data you have is going to be related, especially when you have questions. Uh, most of the time, if you're in a backend, it's not going to be something fancy like Facebook, but it'll be something simple as CRUD. 
And then what that's going to end up happening is you're going to have uh, business people that are going to be like have questions about, hey, what's going on in the app? Hey, can you tell me, give me a report of like how users are using this and you have to write some SQL to get it. And again, you have to think how the data is related. That's just more of the admin side of things. But so like, well, like data relations though. So like if I, if I didn't have these data relationships, right, like how would my application differ than having it on there, right? Does that make sense? Like if I'm adding, say like a user to the system, and there's something called like a foreign key constraint. And for whatever reason, like that, like let's say you're starting to specify the user rules, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, the, the role of a user could be, hey, this is an admin, this is a regular user, this is like a Facebook profile photo or Facebook profile page user, right? Because there's like, there's a couple of different types of Facebook users, mm-hmm. at least to my knowledge. What are the advantages of having constraints? So, like, why do we even need them in the first place? Like, why can't we just have everything in MongoDB, NoSQL land? It makes that model really hard to think about, especially as humans, when we're thinking about stuff, we tend to visualize it. So it, that's one of the reasons the relationships are going to be cool. I haven't mentioned, like, for key constraints and a lot of stuff, because that, that you get into, like, the database realm of stuff. So basically, your web app can help you, like, like maintain a lot of that logic, but also... And if you're going to use a database, you can add more constraints so you, your data can be like more strict, right? Yeah, like yeah, for example, nice. you can do something stupid such as your username cannot have more than four characters. I don't know what you would do that, but you can. And then a database will be like a hard stop on that. Like if your developer forgot to actually write that into your actual API, then the backend will be like, hell no, we're not doing this. So and then it'll crash. <laughs> so it's basically like a system of check and balances. The database is making sure that the API, whatever it's sending it, is matching its rules and that data, right? That's the need for constraints. So it keeps the database clean and predictable, right? Correct. All right, that makes sense. That's if I'm designing the system from scratch, <laughs> which is not always going to be the case. A lot of times you'll be like, they'll be like, here's this database. Uh, it's been like mangled by 15 people in the past. Uh, have fun. And in that case, you'll kind of like most database tools for like GUI tools can kind of like generate the ERD, the entity relationship mm-hmm. diagram, and then you can start seeing how data is related and then writing that into your code. The second case is probably going to be the most common if you come into a workplace. The first one, it's it's a, it's what you what happens when you start a new project, which is not super common. Even when you start a new project at a current workplace, you're not getting a brand new database. You're getting whatever was there before. Yeah, so sometimes that can be difficult, especially if there's not any relationships created on the database, and you just have to infer from the data, the data, the, the tables in the database. Like, okay, this table is related to this table via this these two columns, but they're not. They're, no one created a foreign key constraint against these two tables, so you have to just like know that at a time. And I've seen that in legacy systems, but. And technically, you can you can relate two let's call them objects or two tables uh, to each other in the backend via anything, right? I mean, there's things that make more sense than other stuff, but you can you could relate them by the date they were created. If they were created, we're in the same date. They're related. I don't know, but you, you could. But that's the reason those foreign key constraints are important because it tells you exactly how things are related. Yeah, let's let's move on to like more more of like the design thought process. Let's say you're mm-hmm. a full stack developer and you know some front end development and some back end development. Like you're not like really good at either one. You're just okay at both of them. So and <laughs> and you're you're trying to figure out like you know where you put the logic in the application. Like do you put it on the back end side or do you put it on the front end side? Like how do you how do you like what's the process of like coming up with a way to structure your application for both the front end and back end? I guess in that case, you're probably going to end up doing what's more comfortable to you. Ideally, what you would do is kind of like 
come up with like the bis- the business thing, like, hey, my app is going to be doing this, right? This is the boring part of development, like writing out your business rules, like basically like if you're writing out a business, right? Because the app itself is just a small part of it. Uh, or like the implementation of those business rules. Um, what do I mean with business rules? It can be something like a user can only have one photo or like every single month we charge the user this amount on this date, except if they put this coupon code, that, they, that type of silly stuff. Yeah, it's like um, a user story. Like as a user, yeah. I can do X given Y. Right. Yeah, and then you can kind of take all those and see like, okay, where is this going to be? What are my requirements? Like, for example, like um, your requirement could be, we just need this for like a single event and I need this to be fast. So we'll be like, okay, I can do this in the front end, bring in Firebase, and that's it. Uh, or it can be like, hey, this app is going to be used. Like it's an enterprise style app and it's going to have like a bunch of users and the data needs to be fully correct because we need to connect this to an ERP, which is like things that businesses used to kind of consolidate. It's a giant business so, app, basically. Yeah, it's, it's a very important business app. And in that case, you probably want that in the back end. So that's going to be like, it's going to have... You're gonna have to ask yourself a couple different questions, and they're not. It's not never going to be like a full like yes no. For the most part, I I would err in the sense of like writing up an API and then using my, having my front end, like having my business logic live in the API rather than the front end. But sometimes if you have different like time constraints, then again you probably end up doing everything in the front end. It's it's one of those like eh. We never covered what an API is. What is a what, what does it stand for? An API in the context that we're talking about is going to be, well, an API in general, is, let's just say the name, it's an access, um, application programming interface. interface. So it's basically like a, like a, like an explicit interface which you can interact with the server via, in this case, the, one, the, the context we're talking about is going to be HTTP requests. So it's basically going to be like a URL you can call or send data to and then get back stuff. So in this case, we're talking about REST APIs or REST, REST. REST. Which is, which is a different. It's just, it's just like a standard. There's also like gRPC and some other or yeah. XML, and there's it's just different ways. It's just different ways of communicating from a front end to a back end. Yeah. So in this case, it's basically your what this one does. It kind of like takes the concept of resources. So in that case, what we were talking about earlier, your data, your your database tables, your models. In this case, a user is a resource, and then you can perform the typical actions in that resource. So, uh, add, so create read. Update delete. Mm-hmm. You can perform fraud on a, on a, on data, basically, and then you kind of model everything, all your interactions with that database within that within those constraints. Yeah, like an API is like if you're going like Twitch developer.twitch.com. I don't even know what the site's called. You're reading their documents, and it's like here's how to talk to our system. You put this endpoint called HTTP slash whatever slash create, and then put this payload. That's that's a API. Early when you're reading those documents, that's an API. Let's let's go over. Let's see. Oh yeah, yeah. So so let's say let's say like a hypothetical example. Let's say I'm building a budget calculator, right? Like mm-hmm. a calculator to manage my finances, right? How would I structure the backend logic and the frontend logic? Like, do I put most of it in the backend or in the frontend? Like what? Like let's say I'm trying to like, would I take it traditionally like a Google spreadsheet and like make a budget app that would say like, Hey, these are my expenses for this week. This is, this is how much I'm making. This is like, you know, like how, how I'm balancing out that my, my monthly expenditure. Like how would you write an application like that? Ooh, that's a fun one. Um, that's going to be dependent. So in that case, I would probably put most of this since it's kind of, if you said it's going to be like something like a spreadsheet. So my question is whenever I update a number, this needs to change instantly in the front end. So it doesn't need to recalculate everything on the front end. Or are you gonna hit save and then it's gonna recalculate everything? 
let's just say like when you click the save button, like there's a button in the forum, you have to click that button to then save the information. Like it feels like if if like when you're writing this this application out, like you can like put a lot of the code in the back end, or you could put a lot of the code in the front end, right? So like where would you where would you put both of them? Like let's say you have a, a field for like calculating taxes, a field for deducting um, expenditures, another field for writing different line items and creating more line items for additional expenses that you have. Like how would you structure the logic on the front end versus the back end? If that makes sense. Uh, well, in this case, for invest, so we're going to have those concepts of maybe you have like a budget. So in this case, you have like um, debits and credits. If you're using like a budget, you have debits and credits. Mm-hmm. So obviously credits, oh my God, I just literally blanked out on that. Credits are going to be things that actually add amount, add, add money to your account. Debits are going to be things that take away from your account. Did I get that right? I, but, I, got, uh, I got it. But like, but let's yeah. say like, I guess this was like a bad example, but let's say you're adding all these items up and then you're writing the total. But the, the total amount is dependent directly on the different line items within that that budget sheet, right? Would you store the total and the individual line item costs in your in your back end, right? Because it's redundant, yes. it's redundant data at that point though, right? Because both of them, you can take the total, you can take the, the, the sum of those four items and get the total, but are you gonna store both pieces of information is what I'm getting in the back end. No, I would only store. So in this case, what I was getting at, so with, with the modeling, so you have transactions that are debits and credits. So every time you add in like, hey, I have a paycheck coming in on this date. So that would basically be that rest. So we're, we we like we're, um, we have that resource in this case, which is going to be a transaction. So whenever you add that in, what I would do is add, that's going to be eventually a new line in the database, but it's going to hit the API, make a new one. And now, now that we know it's created, we just send back the, up the new resource and then I can add it to my friend. And then I wouldn't, I wouldn't go ahead and keep a total of it. i running total of what the amount is. I would have my front end look at all the transactions and then calculate that. So, because there's, there's going to be like computed values. So, computed values you can calculate on the fly on the front end for the most part. Okay. So, you, you would still have the logic living in the back end to like make sure the calculations are done correctly, but you'd also have like logic on the front end for actually sh- doing the calculations to show the user like what's happening. Or else you have to call the backend constantly to check that information, right? Correct. And, and it depends. Maybe if I have like a specific transact. So most of the things you're making apps, you have a what's called a a list view, an edit view, create view, and then like the detail view. Mm-hmm. So you have like that's basically like your your simple crowd apps. So basically, if I was just calling like the list view of something, like hey, give me all my transactions, and I can add a new one. I would get back all of that. Maybe I had an endpoint, which is called my summary endpoint, which my summary is going to return back a summary of everything. And then that's going to calculate all the stuff on the fly. So I don't have to calculate it in the front. Okay. Does that make a little more sense? That makes sense. It's going to depend on the views I'm crafting. You want to move on to the topics of languages and frameworks? Kind of uh, sure. where the advantages or disadvantages are between different frameworks like Laravel, PHP, Entity Framework, C Sharp, Node.js. Like, why would you pick one over the other? In this case, you want to go with whatever you're most familiar with. <laughs> it sounds like a silly question, but for the most part, when it comes to backend languages, now that Node.js exists, well, it's been existing for like the past decade, it's the most popular thing to go ahead and do backends with. And then, yeah, I would pick that. I would, well, I would personally pick out Laravel for PHP. But again, it's basically you're going to go with whatever is easiest for you to learn. And 
I guess the one other thing you can ask yourself here is, do I want to do like real-time stuff? So in this case, like WebSockets. So uh, you do not want to use PHP for WebSockets. You would use something like Node or like uh, like Python or like uh, things that run run as a process rather than just run and die like PHP. But it's a little bit more detailed. But in that case, I guess you can kind of like look at whatever um, whatever other apps, similar apps are built with. So a lot of times in the financial space, you're going to find like Java. A lot of times you're going to find not lately, C-sharp, and more like business-y type scenarios. Node.js is like the most popular thing in general. Python is not that, no, not, not Python. Rails is not that big anymore. Yeah. So, so I guess my understanding is like you would pick different languages for like different industries or you'd pick something that you're most comfortable with learning. But, but like, let's say like I have no experience whatsoever in, ba- in backend developments. I would just pick whatever was the easiest in this case, you know, if you're, you know, JavaScript, Node.js isn't that hard of a transition. Um, there are right. additional functions that you have to learn that come with Node.js that are prepackaged from the get-go. Like some of the core modules, I think there's six of them. But, why, but why, why would I, let, let's say, why would I learn C-sharp, for instance, if I already know Node.js? Like, can I just do everything in Node.js at that point? What's the, what's the advantage of picking that language instead? Uh, I mean, you could. There's not. There's nothing stopping you there. But in this case, like, hey, maybe you want to move to C sharp because well, Node.js is very efficient and you can actually it can scale out pretty well, so it can handle a lot of requests. Uh, C sharp is going to be infinitely faster. Uh, mm-hmm. In this case, if you're using C sharp, then that it can handle a lot more traffic. Plus, it's going to also depend. On, that's going to depend if it's if you're writing C sharp, uh, you probably also need like maybe you're you're doing like an, a RESTful API and you also have a a different a, a desktop app. You can probably because you can't do desktop apps in Node.js. Well, right. So, and so that can, but that doesn't count. <laughs> so, so I guess like, well, I mean, like, there's always different libraries for different tools out there. For instance, like, if you're doing like image processing or video processing, certain certain languages kind of are better suited for that type of task because there is more of like a gold standard library that's used in those applications. For instance, like C Sharp. You'll have something called FFF MPEG for video processing. Correct. Right. You and can also do it in Node.js, but the wrapper, but. Yeah, both of them are wrapper. So FFF MPEG is actually a C language. Oh, it's a C language, uh, yeah. Uh, right. yeah. So basically, that's, this is the cool part. And I was, so we were talking about mostly like um, backend as web developers doing all the crutch stuff. But there, it gets a little more interesting when you want to do some sort of like maybe audio processing, video processing. Uh, so basically, what that's going to happen is. A lot of times, those type of processes when it comes to your like, what do you want to call them? System programming when you're actually writing out like C code or you're writing like like Rust, like you're writing yeah, out like, like, like very low level language stuff. Yeah, let's call them CLI. Basically, what you would access through CLI tools, those you can still those still take part in like backend development. That's a bigger area. So what's going to happen is you, most of the time you're going to write bindings into that CLI tool. So it can be something as simple as if you're a node, just calling shell exec or shell execute, and then running this piece of code and then getting that back where it can be a little bit more nuanced to where you actually write a proper API uh, API for that for that specific library. And that can happen a lot of time and like especially like a, if you're writing like a like a machine learning thing. So the machine learning thing runs on its own. It's a little like uh, if you're writing Python, it's a Python script and then you pass data into it. So if you wanted to run that from Node, you want a Node API, you're still going to go ahead and write like a little wrapper around that. Or if you want to do everything in, P- in Python, you're going to write a, like a Flask, something that still calls that, that, that Python file or whatever, but it's wrapped around, if that makes sense. And that gets a little bit more confusing. Yeah. So 
So yeah, so there's a lot of different languages for for different use cases. Let, let's say, but what if you want to get into like a specific industry? Let's say I'm really interested in financial tech, and I'm really interested in enterprise banking software. What what would you know? What, would there be some languages that are stronger in that case in terms of job market slash placement, as well as like potential salary benefits in, in certain languages versus others? Sure. Obviously, depending on. The more people that can learn it, the less the the, the less demand there will be because there will be more supply. But in general, uh, when it comes to like those like let's call them enterprise stripe jobs or bigger jobs, you're gonna definitely encounter like things that are statically typed, right? Because that especially across like huge code bases that gives you more assurance than writing something in Python and it blows up. So in that case, things that are statically typed, uh, it's gonna be that that with C sharp, where you're gonna encounter a lot of Java. For those big, big like financial services or big enterprise APIs. Yeah, yeah, and and you said something about static, a statically typed language. What what is a statically typed language versus, let's say, a dynamically typed language? Ooh, fun. So it's gonna enforce the usage of types. So like in this case, uh, a simple one. We'll talk about like you have like integers, which are numbers, like whole numbers. Um, that's gonna be a type. So you can't, for example, like uh, in JavaScript with plain JavaScript, you can basically add in, let's say you have two strings. In this case, you're going to have A and B. You cannot, and you add them up. It's not going to complain. In this case, you have like a number five in a, in a letter A, and you use the little uh, addition operator. It's not going to blow up on you, right? It'll let you do it. What's going to happen is it's going to give you a string of A and five. Uh, in, a, in a statically typed language, it's going to start screaming at you because you have the type of string. So it's a, a uh, what do you want to call it? A concept or like a data type, it's a data type of string. And if you try to add them together, it's gonna to be like, hey, you can't do this. Uh, it's not gonna to try to convert it for you unless you explicitly tell it to convert it for you. But especially when it comes to like uh, object-oriented programming, you'll have like different types that can do, or classes, which a class, when it runs to an object of a type of that class, it's an instance of that class. And it allows you to like enforce things. And it's not like you're gonna be calling an object that doesn't have a specific method. So you need to call like, hey, I want this invoice object to come down and I want to tell it to to like uh, submit. Silly, silly example, like in JavaScript, that invoice object could be missing that submit function and you wouldn't know it, but when you call it, it's going to throw an error. And a statically typed language, uh, it's going to be like, hey, this object doesn't have that or do you want it to have that? And that's when you get into interfaces and all that fancy stuff. And yes, there is TypeScript, which is a version of JavaScript with types, but it's not going to be as strict as an actually strictly typed language such as Java and .NET. Like TypeScript, you can still cheese it. I mean, you can still cheese any other language, but TypeScript's a, lot, a little bit easier to like escape hatch. What, what is what is like a TypeScript in relation to JavaScript though? So basically it's like, a, it's gonna be like, you're gonna write TypeScript and it's gonna compile down. It's kind of like, there's gonna be like this thing you call that's gonna like turn all that TypeScript stuff into uh, JavaScript. So the relationship is just, it's basically, yeah, so it's basically gonna be what I like to call, it's gonna be JavaScript, but with annotations, right? And it's gonna be like, like it's a linter on steroids. So it's gonna be something that checks your code for errors automatically, but on steroids. So in this case, the steroid part is like looking at types and seeing if your stuff is compatible. Sorry, I meant transpiler, like it, it's backward compatible. Like you can take TypeScript code and treat it as JavaScript. Right. Yeah. Any JavaScript is valid TypeScript, but not all TypeScript is, is valid uh, JavaScript. Same way as like uh, SCSS is a superset of CSS. So all CSS is valid SCSS, but not all SCSS or SAS is valid um, CSS. Oh yeah, that makes sense. When you're when you're working with different backend systems, right? 
let's say you're working with PHP and a LAMP stack, which stands for Linux, Apache, MySQL, PHP. How does that differ with Node.js? Like when you're writing an application on the back end, how do you like in terms of like your tools that you need to, to get up and running? Like how do they differ? They're not going to differ a lot. So basically, when, whenever you're running an app, you have what's called a web server, an app server, which is going to run your app. And running your app is going to depend on, it's going to, so, uh, this, is a, this is a complicated question to answer a little bit. So um, for the most part, you have your app and the app can run itself. So right now, for example, like, uh, let's talk about, let's talk about, let's use the example of, um, of Node and Python. So yeah. Python by itself is just a simple programming language, but you need specific, like, a specific thing to bring it in so it can actually turn into a web server. So it's gonna so it can actually start talking over the network, right? So in this case, I think it's called Wisley, Wisley, something like that. Um, but anyways, what's going to allow you to turn that into like a, a web app that can actually receive connections. But mm-hmm. most of 90% of the time, what you should do is you're gonna have what's gonna be called an app server. So in that case, it's going to be like you're gonna have, or sorry, a, a reverse proxy. So you're not gonna expose that that P, that Python app directly to the internet. You're gonna put it in front. Of, so you're gonna put something in front of it. Uh, in this case, it's gonna be like a web server. In this case, you can have Apache. You can have Nginx, and Nginx is gonna take the requests and then forward those requests to your to your Python app. Yeah. Uh, the, benefit, the benefits of that is that you can actually, if you ever need to, you can actually run multiple instances of that Python app, and then Nginx can take care of like. Like basically, you get a request, now you get a request. It's like a traffic manager, so you don't end up overloading a single process. Uh, and that's how basically Node and Python will run. So they run as a process that once you start it, it keeps on running. Now, PHP is a little bit different because PHP's execution model is gonna like, as soon as it takes a request in, it's still gonna be the same concept. You have like, you have your PHP app. In this case, you have what's called, a, it's gonna be like a little PHP process manager, uh, which it's a, it's, a, it's a process that then triggers the actual PHP app. But mm-hmm. in this case, you're gonna put that in front of, um, in front of. You're gonna put that behind Nginx or um, or Apache, and then it's gonna do the same thing. But the difference with PHP is it's actually gonna go ahead and receive that request, initialize the app, handle the request, return it, and then the app is gonna die. It's gonna like dump itself out of memory, so it's not gonna run as a constant process. So with Node and Python, what can happen is, or not Node Python or things that run as a process, such as .NET as well. If something were to happen when you have an error and you don't handle the error properly, now that's in a corrupt state. But it with PHP that doesn't happen because if if something happens, if it blows up, it just takes itself down. So if your node app was to go into a corrupted state and then it crashes, any other requests coming in automatically is a 500 error. It's a server error because there's no server. It crashed. But with PHP, it just kind of like it, it kind of handles that by killing itself. So it's a it's a per execution model. I think it's what it's called. Yeah, so it, it, gets, it, it gets fancy. PHP usually you have to spin up the server elsewhere, but with Node.js you have to spin up your own server, right? Correct. Yeah. So um, like you have to actually write like turn on server in Node.js, or as PHP you just literally write PHP code because you already yeah, have right. your stack running in the background. You're, yeah, you're you're turning the server on with a with a uh, pro- reverse proxy in front of it, or you can expose it directly, but then that's that runs into its own problems. What, what is this? What is a reverse proxy? I'm not entirely familiar. So in this case, let's say, um, let's go back to a restaurant example from earlier. So once you put in the order with the waiter with the server, what's going to happen is that person's going to go back. But a lot of times they're not going to go directly back to the kitchen and give it to the chef that's going to be cooking your food, right? They're going to either put it into a system or they're going to tell somebody, in this case, maybe like a, 
I don't know what they would do with the expediter, for example, and then the expediter will let the kitchen know. So in this case, that that system where they key it in, or whoever they tell whoever they tell, hey, this order is coming, this order needs to be made. In this case, the expediter, uh, the expediter is going to take care of telling the kitchen, hey, we need this, this, and this, or like the computer is going to show them the screen saying, hey, we need this, this, and this. So it's going to act like it's a middleman, and what that middleman is, it's going it can actually act as a traffic controller, right? So it can be like, hey. We're getting requested this. Oh, let me send it to this specific node instance or node instance, so it doesn't get so we don't overload multiple ones. Or it can happen to where like, and especially with Nginx and Node. So Node is not really good at handling CPU stuff or like like loading files, reading from the disk, loading the file, and sending it back. So in this case, let's say you have a bunch of photos, you don't need to do any processing on the photos. Like it's there already been processed. Mm-hmm. So what can happen is. If you request something from a photos route, Nginx can actually go into the folder and get that photo and send it back. That way, what, the, what that way, Node doesn't have to go get the photo, load it up, and then send it back to Nginx, and then Nginx sends it to you. Uh, and that, that the restaurant example of that would be like if you need a packet of ketchup, you're not going to go to the cook and ask him for a packet of ketchup. You're going to go to like the person at the counter or expediter, and they're going to okay. go ahead and give you that ketchup because it's faster. It, it, it can have, it can have a lot of that's basically what a reverse proxy is, and then the benefits it has. No, that makes more sense though. Do you want to move over into like, we're, we're talking about more of like how to build an application, like, let's say for like 10 users, 100 users, right? But what what if we want to build like an application to scale? What, what sort of things do we have to do or to consider? In that case, you really want to hire a really expensive DevOps person and scrub <laughs> everything to them, uh, which is going to be uh, the person that takes care of running your service. But no, so usually in development teams, there's like there's a person that takes care of actually like running the application and scaling it up. But you let's, let's think about this in the context of a developer. Why as a developer can I do to make their job easier? So in that case, you're going to want to write what's called stateless applications. So in that case, your application itself is not holding any state. So basically, a lot of the times when we're going to scale something to be like for a million users, we're going to replicate it across many, many servers, many machines. So what happens is if your application is stateful, so for example, like let's say you keep a list of login users in the process, right? So mm-hmm. if you scale it out and you spin up a new, let's talk about in the context of Node. Let's say I I know in this my Node app I wrote some logic that says this server's lo- this person's logged in and I'm saving it to a local variable. That's an example of a stateful application. Because now if I um, go ahead and spin up a new Node app, it doesn't have the same state, right? It doesn't know this person's logged in. So in that mm-hmm. case, I would probably move it to a different server such as Redis, or like I would mark it on my database. So you're building out stateless applications, applications that basically, can, they don't need to have any previous knowledge of the world before you spin them up. What would be the best thing you call them? Yeah, so you're talking about like horizontal scalability where let's say like traditionally I got my to-do app and it, it, it's, I got like the front-end React app and then it's commuting to the back-end React app. But let's say like my to-do app just became, you know, like a, a hit overnight and I've got a thousand users, right? And I'm on AWS, which is like a cloud platform. And then, then I'm just spinning up new servers, right, to mm-hmm. handle the additional requests. But then that's gonna hit my database, right, all, all at the same time. Or how does right. that work? So that's that was talking about spinning up servers. So basically, you have the concept for high scalability and availability. Well, that stuff you have the concept of a twelve-factor app, which we can talk about later. But what's gonna happen? One of those things is every service that's on my app itself is a third-party service. In this case, a database is gonna be like a third-party service. In this case, it's still my server, my database though. So what's gonna happen is. I can handle a lot of requests, and the cool thing, especially if you're using Node, is I can queue them up asynchronously, so you can wait in the database. Yes, your database is eventually going to get overwhelmed. So now there's a couple of different things you can do in there. Uh, when it comes to your database, it's a little bit, it's a little bit more in the sense of like, hmm, 
am I writing efficient SQL? Am I writing, are my database queries efficient? Am I requesting, like, in the case of, like, if I'm requesting data, do I, am I requesting, like, my select statement, does it have, like, a star, or am I requesting just the fields I need? So that's probably, as a developer, when you want to start. Also looking at the indexes that you have, depending on the data that you're requesting. Ideally, if you're filtering by date, you always want to make sure you have date indexes and all that stuff. Uh, but now when it comes to scaling out your database, that's a tricky one because you can have different configurations depending on what type of database you're using. So for the most part, a database is stateful, right? It's it's basically it's basically yeah. we're shoving all those right. all state of the application. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a couple of different ways you can actually have like what's called a master-slave relationship. So you have like a main database that kind of clones itself and then then depending on, then it's gonna like act as a traffic controller and kind of do the same thing as a reverse proxy. Like you go here, you go here, you go here. And you might run into an issue where like the database that you get is a little bit of a stale data. That's where it gets really tricky. Uh, or you can, the most common configuration is you have a reading database and a writing database. You have two connections. You have two databases that try to keep themselves in sync. And then you have a connection where you're actually doing only reads and a connection where you're doing only writes. With the sad, with the crappy part that you might end up with stale data. Again, that's one of those things. I think it's called asset, like availability, like availability, consistency, isolation, durability. Yeah. So and that just stands for like if you're like interacting with the database here and this thing with this user, another user can't interact with the same thing. Like if you have like this much money you're taking out, and then like the user is gonna take out the same amount of money, they can't take from the same thing at the same time. Yeah, it gets, it gets the scaling up databases gets really complicated because again, most of the stuff nowadays it's not like you can just throw more resources at it. Uh, databases you can actually give it more RAM, give it more, um, give it more RAM, give it more space, give it more better CPUs, but that's only gonna get you so far, right? If you're talking about like we want millions of people here, uh, eventually you're gonna need to start replicating the database, and that's gonna be. Pretty tricky. To so, do. so what I'm understanding is that you want to minimize the amount of times you talk to the database and make your SQL queries simple, right? But Correct. Let's say I have those, you know, a thousand users, and let's say I'm building, let's just say I'm building Reddit.com, for instance, and I've got, you know, Reddit's a platform, a forum with many other smaller forums where a bunch of people can log on and talk to each other in, in different chat rooms and make comments within comments right mm -hmm. so with the example of reddit let's say you know users are upvoting different items and different things in in reddit right like this is like a really hot post going on right now i think we're like and then you have 100 people upvote it that information needs to be stored right like there's 100 people making the request to call the function to update like this item has 100 upvotes like how do you how would you like manage like not hitting the database that many times? Cool. Um, you're still going to hit it. Well, in this case, let's say there's still going to be two different things. There's going to be the act of uploading and then the act of like just reading it, right? In that case, I will probably use a cache, put a cache for those, those requests. So I don't actually have to go to the database. I can actually read from something that's going to be more efficient. In this case, there's Redis and there's Memcache. Reddit uses uh, Memcache. Uh, which is kind of like store my data in memory. So it doesn't actually have to go to a database and read it. So it's going to go ahead and pull it out from the service, which is faster. It's more for, efficient. That's for reading and for writing, right? Or is it just no, for... Just for reading. You you don't want to write just directly to cache. Like you still... What you end up doing in the case of upvoting, which is going to be a writing action, if you're going to be receiving a lot of those, what you're going to do is create a queue. So you're basically... What's going to happen is you're going to go ahead and receive the request, and then you're going to go ahead and say, hey, I'm going to write this to the database in a little bit. 
So I'm going to add it to a queue. So a queue can be like there's different sort of queue systems. There's you can write your queue into the database, which is kind of defeats your purpose here. Or you can actually use something like Redis, or if you're using something like AWS SQS or something. But it's going to be a, like a way to like make like a little bucket of things you need to do later, and then you can have a process in the background that's going to be like taking stuff off from that queue and be like, okay, cool, it's time to process this, it's time to process this, and it's going to do that in the background. Now, the downside to it is it happens to where you like YouTube videos and upvotes and things like that. They're not, whenever you request them, they're going to not be the exact actual real thing. They'll, they're going to be eventually consistent. So it's, a, it's going to eventually give you the right number. But what's going on, it's not. Yeah, because it doesn't make sense to constantly hit your database every time. So you just batch up all the requests and then make one query to that database and say, there's 100 people that upvoted, here's all the information, and then you update it, right? So there, there is there is some strategies for alleviating the number of times you hit the database because that's one thing that tends to not scale right away or that that that, that, that is harder to scale from the get-go, right? Correct. What else did we miss here? So... Did we talk about serverless? Like, what's the difference between like a serverless uh, setup versus like a server-based setup? Like, what? so a serverless is going to be very similar to the way I told you that PHP runs, to where it it comes alive, it does what it needs to do, and then it's like okay, back, and it kills itself. Uh, serverless is going to be very similar to that. So, what serverless is, it's a it's a way for you to like run your apps on demand. So, what's going to happen is whatever your provider is, AWS, Google, whatever, you have the concept of what's called lambdas or cloud functions or whatever. It's basically you run your app and then whenever they receive a request that's going to your app, they're going to go ahead and basically like, imagine somebody typing in really fast, like NPM start. They're going to do something similar to that. And they're going to run your app and then that app is going to stay alive for a few minutes, handling whatever requests. If there's mm-hmm. something else for that app to do, it's going to go ahead and just turn itself off. With the benefit of, you don't benefits of, hey, you're going to be charged on the amount of time your app is running rather than just being charged for having a server running 24-7. So would it be accurate to say that serverless is just a bunch of little mini virtual machines that you just spin up when you need it and then they turn off when they're not used? Correct. Versus like a server is just something that's on, it's much bigger, it's on all the time usually. Even Correct. when it's like idle at like 2 a.m. in the morning and no one's using the application, it's still on? Correct. Okay. Plus, you would have to manage the security on that server, making sure that it's updated, making sure all that stuff. And if it goes down, it's only to turn it back on. Serverless, it's like it updates itself. It, if it goes down, that's not a problem. What are some of the common use cases of starting with serverless? Like, let's say you have your server-based application, you're deployed on Heroku or AWS EC2 instance, right? Those are just common places of deploying your application for the backend. Mm-hmm. If you want to get started with serverless and you want to integrate that to your app, like where would you use it, for instance? So I would personally use serverless if I'm using something that, um, so something that's not supposed to be like um, maybe going to be cold a lot of times, or then doesn't need to be available instantly, right? Because let's say you're making a serverless function that's going to handle uh, phone calls mm-hmm. with like coding or something. What's going to happen is remember that serverless function is going to take one or two seconds to start up the first thing you call it. It's called, that's what's called called startups. So in that case, that's too long for a phone call to be redirected. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you want to use it for stuff that you need, need immediately available. But I would use it for stuff that's going to be called not often enough to require a full server, right? So it's going to lower my costs. Or I can use it to run like background tasks. So basically, there's a concept of cron jobs. You can have in your normal server, you write a cron that would run 
like an every hour or maybe X amount of time. So in serverless, you can still do the same thing with the serverless config file or whatever. You can have an event that fires every five minutes that runs a serverless function. So maybe you just need to like, maybe you're like scraping Reddit for, for memes, right? That's a very valid issue. Like just going through Reddit and then downloading the dankest memes you can find. <laughs> so what you would do is make a serverless function that gets called every five minutes and then just calls the endpoint for dank memes and just pulls that down and source it into your into like S3 because it's images. But it's all in the background. And it's only going to happen every five minutes or every hour. So you don't need a full server to do that. So I would use it for like background processing or like mm-hmm. endpoints that are not going to be called constantly. I gotcha. What about like emails and PDFs? Like the email, like sign in that, that you use SendGrid to then hit the the, the user's email to say, hey, just make sure to click this link to verify your account. Would you use it in that case? Or would yeah. yeah, I would probably use it in that case. My when it comes to sending out emails, probably what I want to do in my application is have the have the sign up happen. I'll probably say this person signed up, write it to the database, and then send an event or schedule something like a queue to send the email later. So I have like an email queue and they're showing me that this guy, that little worker task mm-hmm. that's going to be sending all those emails in the background because sending out emails sometimes takes like one or two seconds as well. So you probably don't want to have the user writing that one. All right. So, so it's more of like reusable tasks. So it's almost like you can use serverless functions that, that you would essentially use for like one application versus like another application. Like let's say you have a, for instance, like a startup that's in fintech and another one that's in the CRM space, but they both have the same like sign up workflow for creating and registering a user. Then you could just like reuse the same function across both apps, right? Or would that be a good idea? No, well, if they're two separate companies, you would depending on how you're <laughs> that, that would make no sense. But yeah, it's not so much about reuse as much as it is like having like like not having to manage your servers and having things be granular. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you mean with granular? Uh, like, for example, like let's say you, have, you already have this big app where you need to deploy a small quick, a small endpoint, or you need to run a background task, right? You don't want to go ahead and like, oh, perfect example. So a few months ago, I was writing a, um, a service that handled uh, Facebook reviews and reviews from Google. So it would kind of go ahead and aggregate those for you. So basically, we had the main server, EC2, uh, the main server, it was an EC2 instance. That handles the request for like you to see your request, like, see them and all that stuff. But we have a serverless thing that's just just gonna be like a, a cron job. So it's a serverless task that runs every so often to go ahead and load in that new data. Because then we didn't really wanna have to handle that in the main application. So it can be used for like one of things that are part of a bigger system. All right, that makes sense. Do you have any suggestions for resources for learning how to how to do backend developments? Sure. So it's it's gonna be depending on what you know since. I would, since I guess most people listening to this are going to have some interaction with front-end development and some sort of like JavaScript experience, obviously start with Node.js. It's going to be the simplest approach into backend. But in that case, I would recommend like anything, like just Googling YouTube tutorials, especially anything by Brad Traversi on Node.js. And he has a bunch of tutorials on, exp- on using Express with Node.js. Actually, there's a lot of information for doing Node.js applications <laughs> with Express. There's a lot. Or I would go in, if you want to go the route of learning PHP, which is also like a traditional web stuff, uh, Laracasts will have a good thing for Laravel and getting started as well. All right, that definitely helps out. Yeah, so I should give you some perspective on what the user can, or the listener can kind of go into to learn more about, uh, more on this topic. 
Do you think we're ready for dessert time, or do we have to yeah, anything else? Um, no, I'm getting kind of hungry. Uh, all this talking about backend making me hungry. And again, backend's a really huge field. It's same thing as frontend. It's very huge. Uh, but for the most part, we try we try to constrain this episode to being more about like what you would do as a web developer rather than some other sort of like developer that has to work in the backend type type deal. All right. Yeah. So so. Can we can we go over at least like to, to the audience like what what is what is dessert time? Sure, definitely. So I was actually about to do that. So dessert time is going to be like our little personal blogging space for me and Vincent. So it's where we kind of get to talk about what's sweet in our lives. Hopefully, what's sweet and not what's sour, but what's sweet in our lives. <laughs> so it's like the way the, the way like when you like the last meal you eat. Well, ideally the last like part of the meal that you eat is dessert. I mean, you might start it out with that, but I don't know. That's what if I want my dessert in the beginning and my appetizer done? <laughs> no, we're, we're actually like a, we're actually like a five Michelin star restaurant. You have to you have to stick to what we serve you. You can't change it. That'll insult the chef. I thought Michelin stars only go to three. It's like one, two, uh, and three. I don't know, bro. I just came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, you want to start, or you want me to start? Ah, uh, you can start. Yeah. So, kind of what's been preoccupying my time lately. I've always wanted to actually get better at musical instruments and I've had a ukulele for a bit learning how to, to it's my ukulele is actually all over on that side. I can't really grab it right now, <laughs> but I've been learning just like the basics of how to actually play different songs. And there, there's like two distinct ways. A ukulele is just a, a like the, the things where you see like the, the Hawaiians like strumming and like singing along with like more traditional song sets. Right. And there, there's like, yeah, over the rainbow. There's Riptide. There's a couple like other songs that you could play, or more traditional songs, or even more recent ones as well. And I've realized like when you're playing the ukulele, you generally will sing along to the song that you're playing, the chords that you're that you're hitting. And for whatever reason, I can't sing at all. And I've recorded myself, and I have a pretty monotone voice, right? I mean, like right now, I'm I'm, I'm pretty flat, and I've realized that I actually really want to get better at singing. And there's a lot of different things when it comes to singing that you have to know of at least in that sense and i'm kind of pivoting from ukulele to singing like there is different tonal patterns you can go to like not everyone has the same range of tones that they can hit like there is two different types of voices when you're talking about uh, singing itself like there's your chest voice and then there's your head voice right and your chest voice is like when you're going and talking like this right and head voice is when you're like when you're like talking really loud like that like like this right i don't want to go over that because it's kind of embarrassing but there, there's different there's different patterns you can go to and i'm definitely learning more about it i want to go into more one-on-one lessons or at least like get like an actual tutor and like go more to youtube channels and learn more about that so that's kind of what's been preoccupying my time lately and i definitely want to get into guitar as well and learn how to actually play different songs but i've been starting actually playing soundtracks on my ukulele from final fantasy and Final Fantasy Ten is what I've been starting out with. What about you, German? What's your, what's your? Sweet. So my question to you is: Are you ever going to stick to one hobby? <laughs> I'm still, I'm still trying to find what I really like doing. I mean, I like coding, but there's other things that I like exploring. So for me, it's just like this is like this is just like the prime time of my life right now. So I'm just going to like make the most of it and see all the cool things out there that I've wanted to see for the longest time. So. 
that's why I always talk about a different hobby every time. I mean, like it's like this is stuff that I've been thinking about for a while. It's not just stuff I just like decided to do on a whim. I mean, it is to some extent, but yeah. <laughs> yeah so it makes sense to try out different stuff. Eventually, you'll like something. There's a lot of things to do in life and a limited amount of time. A limited amount of time. Cool. So what's going on with me lately, apart from being stuck at home for like the past four months, six months, I don't know, it's been a long year. Uh, I started a YouTube channel. Finally, actually started uploading. I mean, I had a YouTube channel for the longest time. It's mainly been base covers, but um, now I actually started uploading YouTube tutorials or different code, coding stuff, which is kind of fun and kind of scary. Uh, putting stuff out there is always scary, but yeah, that's what I've been doing. It's actually... I'm realizing there's actually a lot of work that goes into making a YouTube video. There's not just kind of like sitting in front of a camera and talking. I've been trying to like do more research and stuff because I don't want to go ahead and say something that's wrong in front of a lot of people. But yeah, that's what I've been up to. It's consuming a lot of time. Yeah, that sounds that sounds like a fun challenge though. What what sort of tutorials are you working on? I started doing like obviously PHP, some Laravel stuff. There's oh, the main one is in like a Laravel tutorial on how to use uh, PHP and Windows, which is never an easy thing to do. But lately I've been more like into Node stuff since basically for work, I've been writing like Node, like nonstop. It's kind of like rolling on me. So I probably have like a little tutorial coming up about type ORM, which is a ORM for TypeScript. Yeah, ORM is an object relation mapper, a way to talk to your database, right? Using JavaScript or Node.js code. Yeah, without having to write raw SQL, which I don't like having to write raw SQL. <laughs> Although, yeah. for our listeners that are new, do you take the time to learn SQL? I've been trying to actually learn SQL a little more, but it's just so many things to memorize. Like, I don't remember how to select a table and how to like order it a certain way and join. I have to like usually look up some reference documents every time I make a SQL query, <laughs> but that's me personally though. Same. I don't remember half the stuff. I constantly have to look it up. Yeah. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to add before we go into closing? No. So by the time you listen to this, this will be your sixth podcast. So uh, if you want to go ahead and give us any feedback, we're, both of us are on Twitter. I'm at hermangamboa95.com and Vincent, you are at? Uh, Vincent N. Tang. We'll have it in the show notes too. <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of like, Interact with us. We're not we don't bite. We promise we don't bite. Alright, well I'll see you guys in the next one. Bye guys. Thanks for dining with us on Code Chefs. We hope we satisfied your hunger. For show notes and more insider info on today's topic, visit our website at www.codechefs.dev. Plus, follow us on Twitter at CodeChefsDev. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and join us back here for the next one. Uh. Check, please.